How many times in your life have you found yourself saying something like, Dear God, help me. It could be anything, right? It could be an illness. It could be a problem at work. It could be a problem with children. It could be a family unrest of some kind. Dear God, help me. In times of great trial, who else should we call upon but God? My friends, even unbelievers call upon a God to help them. A God, a God with a little g, a God perhaps one of their own creation who they take out of their pocket, rub its head, and make some sort of wish. You and me, we who believe in the real God, the true God, and our God, we call upon the name of the one we expect to answer us. And many know the story of the prophet with the, um, the, prophets, uh, the prophets of Baal and pouring water on the altar many times and, calling, and the prophets calling down Baal uh, to take the sacrifice and nothing happens. But when the real God is called and he's called for something that he has declared that he will do, not only is the sacrifice consumed, but the altar and all the water as well. Our God, the true God, is powerful and he will help, and he can hear. Give ear and attend to me, O God. Hear my prayer. Hear my plea for your help. Hear my plea for mercy. Like David, we pray in times of trouble. But unlike the unbeliever, we pray to the only God who can answer. And we've seen so many things that we've prayed about. We've prayed about illnesses in this congregation. We've prayed about Pastor Mitch's upcoming surgery. We've prayed about uh, the missionaries that this church supports and, and Pastor Martin from Trinity Baptist and all of these things that are, are important to us as believers, as the community of God, the people of God assembled in this place. I'm not from among you. I come from the other side of the state, but I'm concerned about the same things that you are. Health and, and the state of the nation and the state of people in it and all of the things that we are concerned about from day to day. My friends, our text today teaches us that when in faith we look to God, he will answer according to his mercy, but also according to his justice according to his love. You see, we talked a little bit this morning about imprecatory psalms, psalms of imprecation, calling upon God to execute his righteous justice in times of trouble, in times of difficulty, in the face of enemies. And we look at yet another, another imprecatory psalm this evening where we call upon God to conquer, to vanquish his and our enemies. We look to a God who has the sovereign right to punish his enemies eternally. And the world thinks this is unfair. The world thinks that God should have no right to send people to hell, that God should have no right to eternally punish anyone for anything because the thing that should make the world work is love. But the world doesn't understand what love even is. The world thinks that love is everything I do is right, no matter what it is that I do. And everything that you do is wrong, especially if it interferes with my right to be me. This is the calling of the world. This is the what I have called before and will call again the culture of me. Where I am supreme and God is not supreme and God must subordinate himself to my judgments no matter how impure, selfish, how, no matter how sinful my judgments may be. Um, we, unlike the people of the time of Canaan, the time of the writing of this psalm, do not pray to the, uh, we do not pray to Baal, we do not pray to false gods, we do not pray to idols who are incapable of doing anything, or if we are doing that, we certainly shouldn't be. We pray to the God of Sodom and Gomorrah, the God who will crush his enemies, as he did in that demonstration of his awesome and mighty power in wiping out those sinful and depraved people. 
according to his justice, not according to his meanness, according to his sovereign right to do exactly what he says he will do, and he will suffer. He will suffer evil only for as long as he chooses to, and then he will deal with it righteously. But to those who call upon his name, he will deal in mercy. And God's justice and his mercy are not separate things. God is a simple God. His justice and his mercy are as interrelated as any of his other attributes. His love, his goodness, his kind, all of these things that God tells us in his word about himself, we get from a God in simplicity. He's not divisible. We don't talk about God's justice on this hand and his mercy on this hand and his something else on this hand and his something else on this hand as if they're all separate components because he is one God. And so his eternal and his unrelenting and his unlimited justice are just as much of a force as his unlimited internal and unrelenting mercy and kindness toward those that he has chosen to love. And so as we explore this psalm, let let us explore it with that firmly in mind. That we serve a God who has the sovereign right to exercise his authority in this world, wait for it, this world that he created. Just as a potter has the sovereign right to take a clay vessel that he has made or she has made and say, this isn't good enough, and smash it and send it into oblivion. God has that right. He's always had that right. And since the world fell in sin, God has had the sovereign right to say, I'm going to wipe all of this out and start over. It's according to his mercy that he chooses, he chose not to do that. And to let a people who persist in sin persist in sin, that his salvation might be known in this world. We pray to the God of Sodom and Gomorrah, as I said, the one who will crush his enemies and our enemies. And most especially, my friends, those of us who believe in the name of Jesus Christ, those of us who believe in God, the the, um, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God, three persons, we pray to the God who saves. So look to understand the words of this contemplative psalm. If you were here this morning, you heard me say that the word maskil, which is in the title of the psalm or the superscription of the psalm, means that it is a contemplative and instructive psalm. So let us look to understand the words of this contemplative psalm, this instructive psalm of David, and do this. Depend on God to deliver his righteous justice. Friends, it is right and good in times of trouble to cry out to the Lord in your distress. Psalm 20 says that. Cry out to the Lord in your distress. To Jacob's God, We direct our pleas. We do not know the precise circumstance of this prayer of David, this psalm of David. There are clues in the psalm that seem to suggest that it might be talking about the story of David's false counselor, his his counselor-turned-enemy, Ahithophel. The story is told in 2 Samuel chapter 15. I'm not going to take the time to read 2 Samuel chapter 15 because we don't absolutely know for certain that it is the backdrop for this particular psalm. You can read that on your own. You're probably well familiar with it anyway. But the general gist of it is that this counselor named Ahithophel was David's trusted confidant. And David's son, Absalom his third son to one of his wives, turned against David and actually tried to wrest the kingdom away from him. His own son tried to upset the kingdom and steal it from David. And it appears in the accounts that he was very nearly successful, that he was actually making some headway in this this misguided attempt to steal a kingdom away that had been given to David. He was king anointed by God himself through the hands of his prophet Samuel. 
But Ahithophel sees in this story that Absalom might become the victor in this issue. And so he switches allegiances in the middle of this whole thing. And where he was once loyal to David, uh, switches his allegiance to Absalom. And this psalm seems to be talking about at least that kind of thing, if it's not this particular, this particular situation. But whatever the situation was, David is pleading with the Lord to hear. He's pleading with God to hear, not out of concern that God won't answer. Think of the times, if there have been times, and if you have been a believer for any length of time, I rather imagine that there were times that this happened to you when you were pleading with God. Now, maybe you weren't doing it with a loud wail that all your neighbors could hear, but you might have been well in your prayer closet on your knees, pleading with God from your heart and soul for whatever the situation was that prompted your prayer in the first place. Why were you pleading with God? Do you think that God is deaf? God is not deaf. Did you think that God was asleep? God does not sleep. Did you think that God could not hear your prayer in the context of all of the other millions of prayers from the other people who are praying to God at the same time? I don't know about you, but I can't sort through two people talking to me at the same time, even if they're talking about the same subject. But God, who is all-powerful, excuse me, all-powerful, all-capable, is perfectly able to sort through all of the prayers coming from all of the people all at once. I don't know how he does it, but he does it. So, of course, you're not praying in your prayer closet thinking that you're praying to a dead God or a sleeping God or a deaf God or an inept God or an incompetent God or an incapable God. You go into your prayer closet or wherever it is that you're praying and you pray to God pleading because you need to plead and because you know that God will answer your prayer. Now, he may not answer it in the way you expect. He may not do what you direct him to do. Oh, you don't do that. You never try to direct God to do anything. You never suggest to God what he might do. Or do you? I do. I catch myself doing it all too often. But don't you pray with the greatest passion in the times of greatest trial? When things seem like they're just so far over your head and so far beyond your ability that the only possible person who can sort that out for you is God? If you went through a conversion experience, if God took you out of your circumstances and in that moment replaced your heart of stone with a heart of flesh, then you know what I'm talking about. Verse 2 of our psalm says, I am restless in my complaint and moan. You know, sometimes we, the, the Hebrew gets translated to English and it just seems to go flat. You read it and you think, oh, okay, I'm restless in my complaint and moan. No, I am restless in my complaint and I moan. The Hebrew behind this means not only I am restless, but I cannot possibly rest if it were the only thing that I wanted to do, no matter how hard I tried, because I am so stirred up emotionally that I can't even think straight is the kind of words, the kind of power that should be coming from this passage to us. David is not just passively saying, oh, I'm restless and I moan all day long. No, I can't stop writhing in my complaint and I moan continually to God because I know that he will hear me. David is groaning with the pressure and the stress of the situation, whatever that situation was. It is writhing and it is twisting in his chest. It's like a knife that's stuck in his heart and somebody is turning it and twisting it. And he, all he can feel is the tremendous agony and writhing and pain that comes from the situation that he's moaning under. And all of us, to some degree or another, have been in that kind of a situation. If you say you haven't, then you're deceiving yourself. 
You may not have moaned in prayer in the same way that David did, but all of us in this life, in this sinful world, have faced up to, or had to deal with difficult situations where it seemed like there was no solution in sight, no end in sight, no possible way of getting through it to the other side. Why was David doing this? He's doing it because of the oppression of his enemies. Our persecuted Christian brothers and sisters around the world can relate to this. You know, the thought of a writhing, anguished heart sounds strange, but consider the circumstances of Christian hostages and prisoners. Consider the circumstances of people who are so put under, they're not even sure that they're going to be alive tomorrow. Verse 4 again, or verse 4, the terror of death has fallen on me. The terror of death. It looks like the world is coming to an end in David's situation in this psalm. In whatever, in the situation with Ahithophel, whatever it was, this is what's going on. Contemplating coming death, the end of it, and when you're in the middle of the prime of life, as David was in this situation, he was, his life was continuing. He'd been promised an eternal kingdom. All of the things that God gave him in covenant, David is contemplating this, and he's contemplating the end of whatever it is. Contemplating coming death can be a heavy, pressing weight that crushes us down. I'm not talking about fear of death. I'm just talking about the impending nature of it in a difficult situation. So the psalmist's situation here is mortal agony, writhing soul, anguish, twisting heart, beating in his chest, is, my friends, the very picture of our Lord Jesus Christ in Gethsemane, lifting up to God in prayer, writhing in anticipation of what's coming, even though our Lord and Savior knew from all eternity that this is what was going to occur. You know, I don't know about you, but I think it's a whole lot harder sometimes to deal with something when it's plainly in front of you in black and white than it is in contemplation. I don't want to put that kind of thing on the Lord because the Lord, our Lord Jesus Christ is the second person of the Trinity. He is God. He understands fully what God understands. But at the same time, fully man on this earth facing that death, it's real. It's impending. It's upon him. How do I know that? See his anguish, our Lord, as he sweats drops of blood. That he says, Lord, if it be your will, or Lord, take this cup from me, not thy will, or not my will, but thine be done. I've got to watch I don't confuse those things. Not my will, but thine be done. No wonder the psalmist yearns to be carried away on the wings of a dove. No wonder that he yearns to fly away and be gone to that place, whatever place that is, even as the gentle dove flies to the wilderness to escape its enemies. The imagery here is so profound. Now, those of you who are older, I'm not talking to anybody under probably 40 at this point, but those of you who are older may remember a commercial where this person says, Calgon, take me away, or the other one that says, beam me up, Scotty, in Star Trek. The whole idea is, get me out of here now. I can't bear up under this anymore. I need to be somewhere else. But those of you even who are under 40 sometimes have said to yourselves, I'm sure, I need to go on a vacation. I can't stand this pressure cooker anymore. The psalmist yearns for the wings of a dove to carry him away, knowing full well it's not going to happen, but yearns to fly away and be gone to that place. The psalmist says would four times. He says, I would fly. I would wander. I would lodge. I would hurry to shelter. See, my friends, wishful thinking is not cowardice. It's not actual fleeing. If any of us is in a difficult situation, say, I'd rather be anywhere else but here, that doesn't make that person a coward incapable of facing up to the situations before them. It's a natural human response that says, I would rather be anywhere else. But standing here, or sitting here, or being here with this situation that's going on, and you have all thought that 
at one time or another. Confess it. It's okay. We're all in this soup together. And so we're reminded once again of Luke 22, and chapter 22 and verse 42. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. My friends, seek God's help in your trials. The psalmist cries in verse 9, destroy, O Lord, and divide their tongues. The idea of division of tongues comes straight from the Tower of Babel, but it was God's plan then to divide their tongues. This insolent people that thought that they could build a tower to reach heaven so they could take heaven by storm or be as God, whatever it was, and God says, I'm going to confuse their tongues. So we have all these different languages and sub-languages and dialects that we have today. Still yet, we have divided tongues. There's violence in the city. There's war in the city. Whose city is it? I'm talking about then. It is the city is Jerusalem that David is in, known as the city of God, the place of God's name, the place where God chose to set his name among his people, the people called out from the rest of the earth to be his covenant people. And here is David writhing in agony about a situation that's going on because of treachery. The psalmist cries, There is war in your city, O God. Enemies are attacking what is yours. And you know from the story of Moses when God is going to wipe out the people of Israel and Moses pleads with God not to take that action. And what does Moses say to God? He calls upon God to defend the honor of his name. God's name is the name above every other name. A name defines who you are. It is how people know you, how they refer to you. And God's name is supreme. And so the psalmist says, enemies are attacking what belongs to you in his pleading. Not, the psalmist is not crying out, hey, the enemies are trying to take something away from me. The enemies are trying to destroy what is mine. He says they're trying to destroy what is yours. This is your city. This is your name that's at stake here. Destroy them, Lord God. In Babel, by confusing the language of men so that they could not communicate, God divided and scattered his enemies. And with the same idea, David calls on God to scatter the enemies in God's holy city. May God just confuse the tongues of terrorists even in this day. Enemies circle the walls. They're in the middle of the city. They're in the marketplace in the town square. Protect your city, O God. But my friends, it's not the enemies that you don't know that are the most dangerous sometimes. As a common saying goes, keep your enemies close and keep your friends closer. It is you, the psalmist says to his deceitful friend, is it David's one-time friend Ahithophel, his once trusted counselor? Or is it Absalom, his own son? Or is it Judas, who betrayed Christ to the cross? Never mind that what Judas did was in the plan of God. Never mind that what Judas did was in the decree of God. We know from our confession, we know from Scripture, that God has decreed from before the foundation of the world everything that will come to pass including the existence of Judas, including his treachery, including his sin. Jesus called Judas, and he walked with him, and Judas accompanied Jesus with the other 11 apostles, the, 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 those that Jesus had called as his disciples on their journey through Palestine. You know these things. And in spite of that closeness, still Judas betrayed. Absolutely, Jesus knew what Judas was going to do. Always. He says so. 
But from Judas's perspective, here's this man who was called by Christ, or called by Jesus, to be a disciple, to help, to, to learn what was going on, to study under his teacher, to carry on the work after Jesus died, was resurrected, and ascended into heaven, and Judas betrayed him. That is Judas's sin, and Judas's sin alone. How sad, how difficult to think one per a person with whom you share so much would turn against you, would betray you. Think about David. Said it this morning, say it again. Even David betrayed his friend Uriah, his soldier Uriah, Uriah the Hittite, to death on the battlefield so that David might have his wife. David, like you, like me, like all descended from Adam, was, conce was conceived in sin. And as the scriptures say, all sin and fall short of the glory of God. We all who are born of Adam turn against our Lord in sin. My friends, beware of the one in your midst, beware of the one in your church or your home or your neighborhood who would turn against the flock. Beware, church, of the one who would turn against the elders. One of the responsibilities of elders is to protect the flock, to guard you. You have a responsibility to guard your own knowledge, to be good Bereans, that you understand the Word of God, that you might be able to determine what is biblical and what is not. And my prayer is that you are all carrying out that responsibility and that your elders are carrying out their responsibility and protecting the flock. You see, if it were an open enemy, according to verse 12, you could hide. You could bear it. You knew, you might know what's coming against you. The desire of the psalmist in verse 15 is that they, the enemy, die, but not just die. He prays to God the imprecatory prayer that they are buried alive because they are evil. And because they hate God, they hate the things of God. And so clearly David is talking about those who will know no salvation those who will never bend the knee and proclaim that Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. You see, our confessions, again, a, re, a bit of a repeat from this morning, but our confessions, our catechisms say that Jesus, our King, will subdue all his and our enemies. Now, think about this for a second. Are we supposed to die, desire the death of people? Are we supposed to desire that they be thrown alive into hell? That they be cast into the eternal lake of fire? That they be separated from all of us? Certainly not as any selfish desire. We are called not to hate. Jesus said, if you even call someone a foul name, it's as if you, it's as if you murdered them. You might as well have murdered them. So our response, our proper response to anything is not to desire the death of people, but yet at the same time, we are called, we are permitted, we should expect that God will deal with and vanquish those who are against him forever. Remember, at the beginning, God has the sovereign right to smash, to destroy, to wipe out, to obliterate. Betrayed by his own people, by Judas, by those who have the gospel and turn away from the gospel to hatred, Christ has the sovereign right and responsibility to punish for all time. If God did not punish unrepentant evil. He would cease to be God. If God is his law, if God has established what is right and what is wrong, and then God abrogates himself by tolerating that which he has forbidden, 
he gives up his sovereign rights. God will not do that. He will not be mocked. He will not let the evildoer, the unrepentant evildoer, get away with rejecting him, spitting in his face, saying that he will never come to repentance and saving faith. Friends, you who feel betrayed or have felt betrayed and are in turmoil, find your hope in God's deliverance. Verse 16 says, As for me, I will call upon God, and the Lord shall save me. David's trust is in God. The words suggest no question. As for me, I will call upon God, and the Lord shall save me. What's the distinction? The evildoer may call upon a God, The unrepentant evildoer will often call upon a God, having absolutely no understanding of who God is, what his standards are, what his law is, what he has revealed about himself in the words, in his own words, in Scripture. Because the evildoer is worshiping and calling upon a God of his imagination. The unrepentant evildoer, the unconverted evildoer. But David's trust is in God. Verse 17 tells us that he is in continual prayer, evening, morning, and noon. Remember that he is writhing in agony. He is oppressed to the limits of the endurance of his very soul by this situation. This person whom he trusted has turned against him. This person in whom he placed much stock and much foundation has turned away from him and turned to his enemy. And it hurts. How many times have any of you experienced the hurt of having somebody that you, betr- that you trusted Turn away. How many times has this church or any church invested in people, discipling people, only to have them walk away from the truth? And all we can understand from that is that that person was never converted in the first place. Because the Bible tells us that no one who is converted, no one who has bent the knee to Jesus Christ in true faith can ever be snatched from the hand of God. They cannot be taken away. And so our prayer continually, while we are calling upon God to execute His justice, is at the same time to truly convert these people who have walked away, these people who have turned away, that bring them back into the fold. That's the point of Matthew 18, is it not? That when someone sins, You go to your brother, and you talk to your brother, and you try to get the issue resolved. And if that doesn't work, you take a couple of witnesses, not your best friends, not the people that you know you're going to be on your side, but take a couple of people to talk with your brother. We plead with God that people be returned to the fold, but we at the same time have every right to expect God to exact his justice on those who will not bend the knee to Jesus Christ. This is hard stuff, isn't it? This is difficult stuff to process. Because all of us want to think that the people that we love, the people that we trusted who have turned away from us and perhaps have had a bad moment, perhaps had a bad day, and that they will come back and everything will be fine and be reconciled much like the prodigal son who returned to his father and his father embraced him and gave him the fatted calf. But not all will, not all can. And so when we pray for God to exact his justice... We're praying for God to exact his justice on those who will not be reconciled. That his mercy and his love for his covenant people will be extolled and will be visible for all to see. How much sweeter is the love of God for those who have confessed their sins, repented from their sins, and bent the knee to Christ 
when those who refuse are punished for their refusal. That's the point of the psalm. It's not wishing hell and damnation on anybody, but expecting that God is going to punish those who refuse. The free offer of his gospel in Jesus Christ. Not the free offer of grace. Grace is for the elect. But the gospel is given to be proclaimed to all. And some will by the gift of the Holy Spirit of faith, respond to the gospel truly and completely. And others will not because they cannot and would not if they could. We don't understand it. But this is the picture that the scriptures give to us. This is what we are told will be. The psalmist who writhes and struggles, it's God who hears and saves. What does he save? He may not save the body, but he saves the soul. The righteous person, the person who has come to saving faith, may die or be seriously hurt or in some way physically wounded as a result of the whatever it is that's going on. Or emotionally wounded, spiritually wounded for a time. But God saves the soul and the body will be resurrected one day. And it will not be the sinful, decrepit bodies that we all walk around with here, but the glorified body in the life that is to come. You see, it's this surety, friends, to which the besieged soul of the believer in Jesus Christ trusts. Jesus, our Lord, was in the midst of strife. He, wa- he is and was human. He walked on the earth in the form of a man. He is, apart from us now, in the form of a man. He proved that again and again and again. He was in the midst of the strife, the war on him, the God-man, right in the midst of the so-called holy city. Jesus died and rose again. It is his certainty that is our surety. It is the hope of every persecuted man, woman, and child who believes on his name that because he is risen, those who trust in him will rise in him and live in him forever. The traitorous friend appears again in verse 20, does he not? He's an equal in the company. He struck his own. He violated his covenant. He was part of the camp and betrayed his people. You know that glib talkers, the ones with words that are nice to hear, soft voices, smooth as butter, and yet they are evil and have, some are evil and have war in their hearts. They have words that cut like swords and divide. Beware. Christian brothers and sisters. Beware, church. Beware, brothers who serve or will serve as pastors and elders. Beware that there are wolves amid the sheep. But your hope is in God, enthroned for all time. It is in the ancient of days. The God who is, the God who was, and the God who will always be. The God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He will humble the enemies who hate him and do not turn to him. He will cast death upon them and even bury them alive. Figuratively or literally, I don't think we know that, but why is it that he will do this? Because God's justice demands that it is so. The reason we find in verse 19, they have no changes, therefore they fear not God. One of the most dangerous mistakes we can make, my friends, is to walk out of this building and walk down the street, wherever the street happens to be, and look at a person and say, that person bears no fruit in his life, he must be among the reprobate. We have not the power to see into souls, do we? The elders of the churches have no power to see into souls. 
What we do is our best to discern who is bearing fruit and who is not by the works that they produce, by the praise they give God, by when they come to church and they're engaged in the church. But even then we know some who have fallen away from that. And it pains our souls when people fall away from that. But it happens. And Jesus said, there are many who will cry, Lord, Lord, and I will say, get behind me, I never knew you. Because it seems attractive. It seems like a a good thing to do for a while, to come to church and be part of everything. And then something happens and the, the evil nature of the heart eventually comes out. And the person falls away. We pray that that person would come back. We pray that person would be truly converted. We pray that person is, was converted and has just fallen away for a time. In Perseverance of the Saints, I believe it is chapter 17 of our confession, it tells us that, that some will appear to fall away even though they have been converted and they, you know, they will return. They will confess again before the end because perseverance of the saints is an action of God, not an action of men. They have no changes, therefore they fear not God. The enemy who is cast into the pit is not the one who has faith like Abraham, but slips and falls in sin. The enemy who will be cast into the pit is the one who turns away from his God, uh, turns away from God and says in his heart and continues to say in his heart until his dying day, I hate you, God. God is just in his judgments. My friends, this psalm is dark. The harsh words are hard to hear, but they must be heard. Otherwise, we get an easy believism gospel. We get a gospel that says, oh, well, God is a loving God, and God is a nice God, and God is going to take everybody to heaven just because they are his creation. He says in his very on Revelation again and again and again, something very different from that. It is those who bend the knee and confess Jesus Christ in their hearts who will be saved and none other. No one will come to the Father but by me, Jesus says. We need to trust in God's, not our judgments, Remember, we need to be careful about that. We can't make judgments about people because we don't know if they will ever come to saving faith. We don't know if they will ever turn from their sin and repent and come to Christ. And we should pray that they will. But we also must trust in God's judgments because God's judgments are the ones that matter. Jesus said in the book in Gospel of John, there is none righteous, no, not one, as he surveyed the crowd. Jesus has the ability to see and know what is in the hearts of men. You and I do not. But trust in God's judgments because our hope is in God's deliverance. Verse 22, cast your burden on the Lord. God will not send faithful ones to the pit. He will not condemn those who he has made righteous. It is contrary to his nature to do so. Why would God go to the trouble of making people righteous and then condemning them to the pit? It's completely contrary to his nature. He will not condemn the ones he has made righteous by the work of Christ. Christ died and rose again and he reigns. He assures us that you who believe in him will die physically but rise again. But to all, excuse me, but the, um, he says that those who believe in him have eternal life. Not will have eternal life, but have it. The righteous will not be moved, as verse 22 says, because God takes care of his covenant children. God will sustain you who believe. He will give you the strength to remain in the besieged city where the enemy walks on the walls and where war is in the square. As he did with the church fathers and the martyrs, he will give you the strength to bear up in your soul against those who would kill you for his sake. He gives this strength to so many in nations where the the name of Christ is cursed. And those who declare it would be silenced. 
Even our nation, it seems, is moving in that direction and has been for some time. The church of Jesus Christ will prevail. The gates of hell will never prevail against the church. The psalmist says it. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. He will not permit the righteous to be shaken. What a contrast to the writhing soul of verse 4. What a glorious promise it is. It is as if the psalmist says, Throw at me what you will, my enemy. Throw at me what you will, my traitorous friend. Our righteous king will not be shaken. Our righteous, uh, cast your burden on the Lord and you will not be shaken. He will never let the righteous, those he has made righteous, fall. But then, says verse 22, you, O God, will cast them down into the pit. The ones who hate and murder and wage war on the righteous and never come to saving faith, they will not live. David trusted in the Lord. Jesus stood firm in doing the will of his Father. Our righteous one, oh, he sweat drops of blood at Gethsemane, but he was never shaken, and he was never swayed from the course that, he had, been, that had been set from before the foundation of the world, that he would redeem those given to him by the Father. You see, the enemy, Satan, won a small battle, but the pit awaits him at the end. Take heart, little dove who would fly away to gentler places and nicer places. Take heart, friends, brothers and sisters, young pastors and older pastors, take heart that when those days come, you will not be shaken because you put your trust in him. Scriptures say, where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The righteous ones who believe on the name of Jesus Christ, King of kings and Lord of lords, will not perish, but have everlasting life. There is no question of the pit and sheol. There is no question of the hell of fire. Into it will go those who hate God's name, attack what is his, and never repent. We do not wish to see it. The solution is so simple. If you want to avoid the pit, if you want to stay out of the pit, come to Christ. Come to Jesus and be saved. Heed the gospel. Come to the Savior in these days when he may be found because after this life is over, there is no salvation for those who have not come to saving faith. The time to act is now. If you do not believe in Jesus Christ in your heart, hear the gospel and come. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see that the burden of our Savior is light. His yoke is easy for those that he has claimed as his own, given to him by the Father in love. And my friends, pray this for your enemies, that they come to saving faith. Pray it especially for your enemies, that they come to saving faith. Pray it for all those who hate God, that they may come to saving faith before they are ripped from this world and they are cast into the pit, into the lake of fire, for everlasting, for all eternity. Pray this for all that you know, that none should ever leave this life without bending the knee to our Lord and our King, enthroned of old. Come. Come to the cross. God will deliver his righteous justice, death to his enemies, and everlasting life to those he has made righteous, those who are his children. You can depend on it. Let's pray together. Oh God, how we want to see everybody we know and love saved. How we want to see all of those who would spit in your face come to saving faith and be saved. We do not know whom you have chosen to give eternal life from before the foundation of the world. We do not know those who will never bow in obedience to you and proclaim your name as King of kings and Lord of lords. 
God, you know. And we trust you to do what is right and what is good. And we trust you to save those that you have determined to give eternal life to in your time and in your way. And we trust that you know even when we don't. Especially, perhaps, because we don't. You do. Father, we ask you, we ask you, we plead with you to save us from our enemies, to save us from your enemies, to unite us in covenant relationship with all of those who will bend the knee in truth and the Spirit of God, be united by the power of God forevermore. Help us to unashamedly proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good side of it as well as the hard and dark and difficult side, so that the people that we know and love and we meet in the marketplace and on the street square hear the full gospel, the full reality of the picture that you have painted, the, or the crea- of, of this fate of man, your fate for man, that you have ordained since before the world began. All of this, Lord, we pray that it would be to your glory, that your righteousness and your justice will be exalted and known before all the world, that you will be known as the God who saves his elect and punishes those who refuse to bend the knee. Father, we pray Truly, that every person in this place has truly received the gift of faith and exercises that faith by proclaiming the name of Jesus Christ now and forever, that your your joy and ours will be complete. Father, all of these things we pray for the glory of your name, that your name may be exalted in all the earth because you have done it. You have given to us what you said you would give to us, that you preserve to us or you promised us and we stand on your promises for salvation that we will truly be saved in the end and that the pit is not for us. Father, all these things that we pray, all of the all of the prayers for for salvation and for punishment of enemies that we give, we give in the name of Jesus Christ, first and best of our brothers, King of kings, Lord of lords. And we pray these things in his holy and precious name. Amen.